Welcome to Hillside Community Church's weekly podcast. We're glad that you've chosen to listen to this week's message and hope that it ministers to you today. Hillside's located in Keller, Texas, and if you would like to know more about us or to listen to previous recordings, please visit us at yourhillside.com. And now this week's message. Well, that was worth being here for right there. I feel better, actually. Don't you feel better? I was just thinking about that song. Hopefully this passage will do that. Although I will tell you that uh, as difficult as the Olivet Discourse has been, and I just got to give you really high praise for enduring that. We have thinned out a little bit, but the Olivet Discourse will do that. That's okay. Um, Lots of credit for hanging in there for this. And this is really the passage we're going to look at today. It's really the application of the whole text, but it's given me more stress than everything else because there's a couple of things in there we've got to figure out. But, uh, uh, but I do have to encur- say that hopefully we will be as encouraged after listening to that. Now, what, one of the things that we have learned about prophecy, a couple of things we've learned about prophecy is that the function of it is not for you to figure out exactly when Christ is going to return. That's not the function of it. It's not for us to slot all the pieces. We have seen, and I won't explain all of this, but you'll reflect on it, the prophet, whoever the prophet is, and in this case, in the Olivet Discourse, it's Jesus, uh, sees all kinds of events to come, and in all of them he sees the second coming. Uh, It's like what I heard... One preacher said it's like hill walking. You know, you, if you've ever done any hill walking, you know, you get to the peak and you think you've made it to the top. And then when you get there, you realize there's another peak to climb. That's kind of how eschatology is. So whatever peak the prophet is looking at, he sees everything happening in that peak, even though there are more peaks to come. If you don't grasp that, then eschatology is very difficult. You've got to be, it's very hard to understand. Um, so uh, there's, that means there's an immediate fulfillment, one I can see, and then there's one past it that I can't see. So there is a uh, sort of an immediate fulfillment, and then there's an ultimate fulfillment. And in the Olivet Discourse, remember, that's A.D. 70, what happens in A.D. 70, and then something that's got to happen in the future that hasn't happened yet. So that, that'll help you a little bit. So the various... Phases of God's activity are presented by the prophets as one virtual reality, even though they may be talking about multiple events. Uh, one of my, one of the commentators that I've really come to love on Mark uh, writes it this way: it says the eschatological drama. And eschatological, remember that term just means end time events, the end. The eschatological drama will run its course. Scene by scene. But the actors on the stage have only vague clues about where they are precisely in the play. Only the stage director knows. He has given the actors instructions about what to do and what to say when they see certain things happen. But that is it. They know how the play ends. But they do not know when the curtain will fall. That's about as fantastic a picture as you can get. So as we come to the end of this chapter, uh, you see the real application of this text and what eschatology is supposed to do for believers. 
uh, and I think it's best described, as you, as you heard and saw the text, as a wake-up call. It's basically just a wake-up call. Uh, I read this this week. I don't know if it's funny enough, but I did read it. A man and his wife were having some problems, and they were giving each other the silent treatment. The next week, the man realized that he needed his wife to wake up, wake him up at 5 a.m. for a flight. Not wanting to be the first to break the silence, he wrote on a piece of paper and handed to her, please wake me up at 5 a.m. We've all done that. All right, we've all... <laughs> How many of you are good at the silent treatment? How many of you are good at that? Yeah. Uh, so the next morning, the man woke up, only discovered that it was 7.30, and he'd missed his flight. Furious, about to get up and go scream at his wife, he noticed a piece of paper sitting next to the clock that said, it's 5 a.m., wake up. <laughs> I thought that was genius on her part. That was genius. So when we come to this last text, we have to do two things. And even though it's the application, one of them is kind of complicated as you would assume, in the Olivet Discourse. I guess that's what's made me anxious over the weekend. Because uh, we have to do two things. The first thing we have to do is we have to resolve a tension. We have to resolve a tension. And I'll show you what that tension is. And then the second thing is we have to understand what it means to watch. To watch for the coming. And that's directly related to how you understand the tension created by the passage. Uh, let me show you a picture of the whole passage together and highlight, and you'll, be, you'll see very quickly uh, what is going on in this text. So here's the whole passage looked at as a whole, all right, because good to do that every now and then, and then highlight the things that stand out to you, that stand out for, by an obvious reading of the text. So there's a couple of things that really stand out in this text. Number one is, uh, no one knows. That's three times in this text. You do not know when. Hey, Christians, swallow that. You don't know when and you can't. The second thing is four, uh, actually, look at one, two, three, four, five times is the idea of stay alert. The three purple ones are one Greek word. Watch out is another Greek word. Stay alert here, translated stay alert, but it's a different Greek word. You've got three different Greek words creating five exhortations to watch out. So you need to watch because you don't know when. You got it? I mean, that's pretty much what the text is saying. It's not a complicated text at that level. Uh, but it raises attention. It raises attention, and you'll see that tension develop at this right in the first verse. And I got to be honest, this is where I'm really lost. I'm not sure exactly where to begin in explaining this tension to you. And so uh, I'm going to do my best to be clear. All right. Here's what Jesus says. But as for that day or hour, no one knows. No one knows it. Neither the angels in heaven nor the Son, except the Father. Now, there are profound concepts in here that have to be just at least thought about for a second. But the first thing is, 
is you need to understand the tension here. Jesus has made it crystal clear that no one knows the day. And he's given you a hierarchy to understand how serious he is about that. The angels in heaven don't know it. The son, as he functions on in, in his incarnation here in the flesh, does not know it. Only the father knows it. So that means we've got to examine something about the father. We'll see. But it makes it crystal clear no one knows. Yet, at the same time, if you remember the text before, remember the text before this? I don't have it up here. It's, remember the parable of the fig? The parable of the fig tree. Parable of the fig tree says, if you look at the, if you look at the tree, you'll know that summer, summer is near. Isn't that what he says? And the fig will tell you summer is near. And we, sh- we said in the text, it's not hard to see, the summer represents second coming. His return. So Jesus says, you can look at the tree and you can see that summer is near. How many of you know summer's near? Okay, you know it's near. You know what we have in our actual world is we actually know the day that summer begins. Does anybody know it? June 20th this year. It's June 20th this year. And by the way, it's always either June 20, 21, or 22. Okay? Smart people knew that. I didn't. I didn't know that. And there's a way they know it exactly, and I read it, and it made no sense to me, so I didn't care anymore. All I'm telling you is that June 20th is the day. So we know that summer's near, and we also can pinpoint a day when it's going to happen. Well, here's what Jesus is doing. Jesus is saying, yes, summer is near, but it is not here. And he also says in verse 32, because here's what our verse is saying. You can know it's near and not know exactly when it's going to be here. Does everybody understand that? Okay, because that's the tension. How can I know it's, it's near and yet at the same time still be expectant of something that's about to happen? Because what, how do I know, let's go back to this picture, how do I know it's near? So this becomes really important. Well, what does the text say? I won't ask you this, but what did the text say that you'd know summer was near about? We argued that it was the abomination of desolation. If you see that fig developing on the tree, then you know he's near. You say, well, if I see that, then I know it's not far away. Yeah, you know it's not far away. But you don't know which day he's coming. So what does that mean? Well, that essentially means he cannot come tomorrow. He cannot come tomorrow. Because you didn't see that happening on the fig. He can't come tomorrow. can't come today. If you were, uh, let me see if I can, so do you see the tension? Wait a minute. How does, how does the text telling me to watch like it could happen tomorrow, at the same time telling me to watch the fig to know that the summer's near and not here yet? Do you see the tension? 
wait a minute, you're asking me to live like it can happen tomorrow. But you're also in the same breath telling me that the second coming cannot happen tomorrow. And I'm going to show you why that is the reality. And then we're going to have to figure out what does it mean to watch if you can't come back tomorrow. All right. So do you understand why I was a little anxious this week? Yeah. All right. So I'm going to do this as clear as I can do it. So we have this tension. Uh, We have certain signs. And then we have this sort of watch for this to be expectant, even though we're looking for certain signs. And we got to wait for the signs to happen, but we're supposed to be expectant in the meantime. So, essentially, what is happening here is... Uh, though we know there are certain intervening events before the second coming. So we know Jesus is going to come back. All right. This will be the second coming. We know there are certain things that have to happen prior to that. We know that. The scriptures are crystal clear. Certain things have to happen before he comes back. Even though... That's the case, and that's the way the prophet presents it. When Jesus gets to discussing this piece, it's as if he forgets this piece and just wants you to view the coming and not focus on the events before it. That's always how the second coming is addressed, even though there are certain events that happened prior to it. And I'm going to prove that to you, and I'm going to show it to you right now in Scripture. Okay? Um, if you argue for what we call imminence, that means the second coming can happen today. The only way that can happen is if you're a pre-trib and you believe in the rapture to come prior to. But eminence is, is associated with a second coming. It's not, a, it's not accompanied by the rapture in the scripture. Part of the problem with the pre-trib, and I'm not throwing the position under the bus. I've got too many great scholars I love that are pre-trib. And by, if you're sitting in here and you go, what the heck are you talking about? You know, there's a tribulation coming, a seven-year period. And some people believe it's going to come, uh, that, that God's going to come back and get us before it, the beginning of it. That's a rapture. So prior to the trib, we're going up. Some people believe it's going to happen in the middle. Some people are going to happen in the end. Um, uh, what was I saying? <laughs> Golly. Uh, so the only way that they take the concept of eminence, what they do, what the pre-trib position does, and only the pre-trib does this, only the pre-trib position looks for signs because they think they're going before, before the actual coming happens, which is just, listen, you can hold that position, but it's very difficult. It's very, very difficult to see laid out clearly in scripture. You, you, you can see the Olivet Discourse tells you something's got to happen before that coming happens. What you're believing is that there's another coming happening and you're seeing it that it could be any time. So the church can be raptured any time, which I, I, just, I just have a really hard time seeing that in this text. In this text, there's no rapture in here. Whatever the second coming is, you, you've got to say there are signs prior to it. And it's the abomination of desolation. That's the middle of the tribulation. 
Second Thessalonians 2 says the same thing. The Thessalonians thought they were in the, they thought they were in the day of the Lord. They thought Jesus had come. And Paul says, no, he hasn't come yet. And they say, well, how do we know he hasn't come yet? Because we're suffering. It might as well be tribulation for us. And if you read Thessalonians, you'll see that's the case. That's why Paul is talking about the second coming to them so clearly. And he says to them, folks, read it. Second Thessalonians 2. He'll say to them, it won't come until the apostasy occurs, till the man of lawlessness sets up his sets up in the altar, in the temple, the same thing the, Mount, the, the Olivet Discourse. Thessalonians is essentially the Olivet Discourse in Paul's writings. And so something has to happen before he comes back. The second coming. So you say, well, how do I live every day as if, if the second coming is supposed to happen uh, in the future? Well, listen to what... So i got to draw a picture for you. Because I know that this is, uh, uh, this is probably, I know, um, freaking some of you out. I mean, if you're pre-trib position, you believe God can come back any second. If you're not, you don't hold that position. You don't look for signs and you don't hold prophecy conferences. <laughs> you see? Because you know there's something in the middle that has to happen before he can come back. Right? You don't, you don't need that. So. Uh, so let me show you what I mean by this. I'm going to read to you a quote, and then I'm going to draw you a picture. Some of these quotes need a picture uh, to understand. But listen to Cranfield. He's a great commentator on uh, Mark. He writes this, and then I'm going to show you a picture. If we realize the incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension on the one hand, and the second coming on the other belong essentially together and are really the same one event, They all sort of come together in one event. A package of of redemption. They go together. In a real sense, they're one event, one divine act, being held apart only, as we'll see in just a minute, by the mercy of God who desires to give men opportunity for faith and repentance. Then we can see that in a very real sense, the latter, the second coming, is always imminent now that the former has happened. Because all in the, everything in the package has happened except for that one, it's always the next thing. Do you see that? It's always the next thing to happen. But listen to what he says. It was and still is true to say that the second coming is at hand. And indeed this, so far from being an embarrassment or a mistake of, you know, Jesus uh, mistakenly predicting it's coming and then it doesn't. He writes, ever since the incarnation, men have been living in the last days. So here's our picture. He, he basically says this. When Jesus came, the incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection, ascension, all happened once. The only thing that hasn't happened is the return. We know in Scripture that there is a delay before this one, even though this is still part of this very real, everything that Jesus intended to do and accomplish. And it also uh, validates salvation. Part of the redemptive plan is that this has to happen. You can't leave it off. But there's a delay in there. And of course, we've got to ask the question, why? And we'll do that at the end. But this return is separated out. And there's a delay in this one. But 
where we sit together, any generation of Christians knows it doesn't matter as soon as Jesus rose from the dead. From the standpoint of the believer, whether you were one of the apostles or whether you live today, or I'm going to show you, whether you are literally minutes away from his return in Revelation. Everyone sees this as can happen. The expectancy of it is so phenomenal because it's a part of this what has already happened that it can be seen by itself as the very next thing and something we ought to anticipate as if it could happen tomorrow, even though we know it can't happen tomorrow. Does everybody see that? Now, let me show you how you can know that. Just think about this for a second. Let me find this in my. This is something that I really wanted to share with you. First thing I want you to know is delay is built into the parables. So when, when you read the parables regarding the second coming, we're going to look at one here today in this text. Uh, all of them assume delay. A master went on a journey and he was going to be gone for some period of time and you had things to do while he was gone. There was always the intention of delay. So even though Mark is reading these words to a group of people who were just years away from Jesus' death, even the disciples reading it while Jesus is standing there with them, they can already be anticipating a second coming. He hasn't even risen from the dead yet. How did it apply to the apostles? How did it apply to the New Testament people? How does it apply to us? It's got to mean something for every single generation of people. Because still, this is the only thing left, no matter where you live in here. Okay, so so hear this illustration. Uh, Well, let me say it this way. So because the return is next, because it's the focus of believers... And even though there are intervening events, even though it cannot happen today or tomorrow, each generation is to live in an expectancy of it because it is certain, it is next in the redemptive plan, and it is the ultimate vindication. This is something we call prophetic foreshortening, where we literally think of this, ignore the delay, and come here. And that would put this right here in terms of our thinking. All right, so when we think of the second coming, we just think it's the last piece of the list he's already accomplished. So, I know that's a little bit complicated, but I'm going to clear it up for you right now with this illustration. All right, let's, uh, I think I've got enough blanks. Okay, here's Jesus, and I'll just draw a cross for him. Here's Jesus right before he goes to the cross, and he's telling his disciples, he's telling the 12, uh, he's talking to them about the second coming in Mark. He's describing it. He's telling them, and he's saying, I want you to watch for this. I want, he says at the end of Mark, he's telling them like he's telling us, watch Okay, Jesus, you're telling us to watch for this. Because as if it could happen any minute. But we all know it couldn't possibly have happened before what? 
Even for the disciples. Could it have happened the next day for the disciples? Could it have happened the moment that he rose from the dead two days after that? Could it have happened there? No, it couldn't have happened there. It couldn't have happened until after AD 70 where Mark puts it. AD 70 had to happen first. He told them that. Watch the fig. The abomination of desolation, which is what this event is. It's got to happen after this. So even for the disciples living in Jesus' day, they would have to have had to wait to A.D. 70 for him to come back. He couldn't have come before A.D. 70. Does everybody understand that? In Mark's day, he could not have come before A.D. 70. Because he told them that was going to happen, and then he would come. Now we're looking forward to another second coming. We know that A.D. 70 pictures another abomination of desolation in a seven-year tribulation right in the middle of it. And then... The rest of Scripture confirms that after that happens, then the second coming will happen. That's got to happen first, just like it did in AD 70. Some events have to happen before he can return, before the second coming can can happen. Now, let me show you one more thing, which I think is really interesting. Imagine, so here you are as a disciple. You're here, and Jesus is telling you to watch. And yet it still can't happen till here. What if you were in the seven-year tribulation and you were right at the very end of it? You know, in Revelation, you have this seven-year picture described, this seven-year tribulation described, clearly and beautifully presented on this screen. Uh, Let's go ahead and help you a little bit. Let's go ahead and, well, we have a chart. Let's not forget we have a chart. So here's your seven-year tribulation, divided into half. We know the abomination is going to happen in the middle, just like it did in A.D. 70. It's going to happen here, too. We know he's not coming back. Second Thessalonians tells us he's not coming back until after that. So the coming has to be here. That's what this represents. The coming has to be there. It can't come before this. That's crystal clear. Now, what if, what if you were living right here? What would the scripture say to you? Because remember, you know what's happening here? You got seven seals, then you got seven trumpets, and then you got seven bowls. When the seven bowls are done, it's done. So imagine you're at the sixth bowl, about to be at the seventh bowl of judgment. These are judgments. Here's what Revelation 16, 17 would say to you if you're standing there. I'm going to draw you. So you can see yourself in that moment. Here's what he says. Look, I am going to come like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays alert. Isn't that our word in Mark? It's the same. By the way, it's the same Greek word. And does not lose his clothes so that he will not have to walk around naked in his shameful condition be seen. Here you are. This is right after the sixth bowl and right before the seventh bowl starts. And look what it's telling you to do. Stay alert. It doesn't matter if you're 2,000 years prior to it, if you're five days from it happening, if you're 24 hours from it happening, you got to stay alert the entire time till he actually comes. That's for every generation. 
is to stay alert. Uh, I love the way uh, George Ladd writes this. He says, the prophets were little interested in chronology, and the future was always viewed as imminent. The future was always viewed as something that could happen any day, even though we knew there were signs that had to happen first. The Old Testament prophets blended the near and the distant perspectives so as to form a single canvas. Biblical prophecy is not primarily three-dimensional. This is a great statement. It's not three-dimensional. It's two. It has height and it has breadth, but it has very little concern for depth. It's not concerned. It just sort of collapses the distance from where you are and where it could be as if it were going to happen yesterday. Such a great line. The chronology of future events, the distant, is viewed through the transparency of the immediate. Everything is viewed as though it can happen right now, even though it's distant. So he goes on to say, it is true that the early church lived in expect- expectancy of the return of the Lord. Because you're reading the scriptures and you go, why did, the, why did all the people I'm reading about in the Bible act like he could come tomorrow? Because that's what every generation is supposed to do. Whether you're in First Thessalonians or you're Re- Revelation sixteen fifteen, and you're like minutes away from the end. Everybody's supposed to stay alert at all times as if it could happen tomorrow. Because it is so certain to happen. Because it is next. And because it is the final reality. We all live as if that could happen tomorrow. Even though we know certain things have to happen before it can come. So that's what he writes, and I think it's great. And that's why he says, It is true the early church lived in expectancy of the return of the Lord, and it is the nature of biblical prophecy to make it possible for every generation to live in expectancy of the end. So you sort of have a tension. You have a tension that says, well, second coming doesn't look like it's going to happen tomorrow. Uh, And yet I am supposed to... uh, I'm supposed to be ready as if it could. Well, let's go back to our text in Mark. But as for that day and hour, notice Jesus gets specific here. That day and literally reduces it down to within a 60-minute period. And by hour, he means the moment. You can know the summer's near, but you will not know the day is here. Even though you know what the middle is. The end is still going to come unexpectedly. That's just a fact, and that's how it's presented. So you do not know the day. You can look at the summer. You can see summer's coming, but you're not going to know which day it arrives. That's the tension. No one knows. Neither the angels, the father, I mean, except the son. Only the the father knows. Even the son doesn't know when. And, you know, D.A. Carson said something, in, uh, and I, I heard him say this. It's almost blasphemous to try to choose a date. It's blasphemous to try to choose a date. Because it basically says, I'm better than the Son, and I'm equal to the Father. Do you see that? That's why it would be blasphemous to try to pick a date. Don't you let anyone pick a date for you. Because it's bordering on blasphemous. I know more than Jesus did, and I know exactly what the Father knows. It sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? You almost don't want to even let yourself try because of the 
just the, the sheer arrogance of assuming you know. So that's, you, you can't get a better verse to say, just let the details go and be ready when it gets here. Is this verse right here. And what is it about the father? Because, you know, when we look at this, you and I have always been bugged by this. Why the delay? All right, certain events have to happen, but there's got to be more to it than that. And the scriptures give us at least two things. Why the delay? All the parables do it. One of them is to test the faith of us. That's what Mark 13 has always been about. And you can read all the second coming texts are all about, let's see if you make it to the end. One of the things is when God gets, when God does come back, he wants to know that the ones are his are really his. That's why we talked about gritty faith and faith that lasts. He wants to know that. We'll see it in a minute. It'll develop a little bit more. But the main reason, another reason, and Peter is the one who brings this up. Because in, when Peter wrote, he said, yeah, some people are going to say, where is he? Why hasn't he come yet? You guys are crazy to be waiting for this guy. That's what Peter's, Second Peter 3, you can read it yourself. Here's what he says. The Lord is not slow concerning his promise, as some regard slowness. Look what he is. He's patient toward you because he does not wish for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. That's what he wants. You say, what's the delay about? Well, look at, look at the same chapter. Look what Peter says after this. It's fantastic. Therefore, dear friends, since you are waiting, and that's what everyone does associated with Christ because the last piece hasn't happened yet. The incarnations happen, crucifixions happen, resurrections happen, ascension happen, the return hasn't, so we're all waiters. Does everybody get that? We are all waiting. The best thing that can be said about you is said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 of the Thessalonian people. You guys are studs, he says to them. You're awesome in your faith. And one of the descriptions he gives of them is you wait for the sun. What does it mean to wait for the sun? It means... It means... That my whole life is oriented toward that next thing, even though it's not happening tomorrow. My whole life is oriented toward that next thing. Which means I'm not standing around looking for signs. I'm about his business till he gets here. We'll see that picture here in just a second. Therefore, dear friends, since you are waiting for these things, strive. Don't get lazy. Strive to be found at peace without spot or blemish when you come into his presence. There's something to be doing before he gets here. And regard the patience. Here's what we're supposed to do. Not only are you supposed to be, hey, straighten up and be doing what you're supposed to be. The second thing is, I want you to regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. Just as also our dear brother Paul wrote to you according to. You need to regard the delay. Not as God is slow. Not as evil's winning but salvation for people. Hey, you know anyone who's come to Christ lately? Does anyone in here know anyone who's come to Christ lately? Let me see your hands. Know anyone who's come to Christ lately? And by that, I mean, let's go three years. Okay, so you would, would, you, would, would you have wanted him to come three years prior to that? Don't you think he knows exactly when to come? He wants you to regard his slowness. And remember what Peter says? A day is as a thousand years to God. You know that it's only been two days in Jesus' mind and heart. That's how patient he is and how loving he is of sinners. 
that it feels to God like only two days. Because Peter says a day with him is a thousand years. His patience is ridiculous. We must see that delay as equaling salvation. Not, oh no, the world's going under. That's what we do. Not the Father. The Father sees it as salvation. He'll handle the judgment part at the end. So that's one, another reason for the delay. And remember in Acts chapter 1, and I want to show you this too, because in Acts chapter 1, right before he ascends to the Father, they can't help themselves. They want to ask him again, is this going to be the time? Is this it? And this is what he says to them. You're not permitted to know. How many times do I got to say it? It's like a parent to a kid. Didn't I tell you no? How many times do I got to say it? How many times have you said that? The Father has set that by his own authority. Leave it up to the Father. God help us. Don't leave it up to the church. It's up to the Father. He has the authority alone to deal with that. You, on the other hand, are going to receive power and the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you and you're going to be my witnesses. You've got a job to do. I need you about the business until he comes. Now that's going to lead directly into the second reason for the delay. The first one, aside from certain events eschatologically that have to happen, is that the Father's heart is so big. His heart is so big. And then the second one comes in the parable itself. Uh, which is, um, let's see. Jesus is going to describe the second coming. It's like a man going on a journey. He left his house and he put his slaves in charge. He put them in charge. He assigned each of them a task. And then he commanded them, commanded the doorkeeper to stay alert. Here's our verses. Here's our text. Doorkeeper, stay alert. Stay alert then because you do not know when the owner of the house will return. Whether during the evening at midnight the rooster cr- or, or when the rooster crows at dawn or else he might find you asleep when he returns suddenly. So here you get a really good picture of assuming delay. Why is he delaying? Well, because he has certain things he wants people to do while he's gone and they got to get done before he gets back. So part of it is assessing us. Hey, are you going to make it to the end? Or are you going to fall asleep? So part of the delay is assessing us. This is essentially what he is saying here. Okay, so Jesus has gone on a journey. We know he's going to be gone a while. We have things to do, and of course we're going to do them. That just assumes that he can't come back until we get them done. He's going to assign us work. Those are both participles. Here's the main verb, and it suggests that all of us, in a sense, are doorkeepers. Disciples are doorkeepers. In other words, no matter what it is you're doing every single day, at some level, you ought to be thinking about manning the door when he comes back. Okay? Because that's the emphasis of the text, is about doorkeepers. So no matter what you do for God while you're here, until the end comes, or till your end comes, you're also a doorkeeper. And by doorkeeper, it means you've always, you've always got your eye on who's coming in and out. 
Because one of these days you're going to open it and guess who'll be standing there. That's the idea. You always have to live with your eye on the door, even though you're knocking yourself out cleaning in the house. You ever clean right before company comes? You ever clean right before company comes and you're doing the last things, but meanwhile, you know, they're about to walk up any second and you've got, you got your eye on the door and you're, you're watching out the window and you're doing stuff and you're, you're hustling. Your house never looks so good, right? You got your eye on that door. That's what he's saying. We're doorkeepers. Because what we want to be able to do when that day comes, we want to live, even though the doorkeeper knows he's probably not coming back the same day he left, and he's certainly not coming back the next day. He's given us too much to do. I know he's not coming back today or tomorrow, but I'm living every day as if he were going to, and I got my eye on the door until he does. In other words, when he comes, I want to be able to say, yeah, I've been expecting you. Come on in. I have some things I want to talk to you about because I was just taught. I was just. I was just thinking about this when it comes to the kingdom. Wouldn't you rather have that conversation than, oh my gosh, can you give me just a minute? Kids! You don't want that feeling. What you want is the feeling of, I've had my eye on this door since you left. And everything I do, I do expecting fully that you're going to come back. And when you come back, I just want to be doing what you told me to be doing while I was gone or while you were gone. So when you come in, I don't want to be surprised. I want to know you were coming. You're not, you're not unexpected company. You're company I've been expecting. That's the difference. And then notice that Mark says, you know, you don't know whether it's going to be in the... Look, look how specific he is. This is important. Because you say, well, if we know he's coming back, we, if we know the middle thing has to happen in the tribulation, if we know he's at least three and a half years before he comes back, if we know that, doesn't it mean we already know when he's coming? No, because you don't know the hour he's coming. And Mark breaks it down into the four Roman watches from six to nine in the morning, nine to 12 noon, noon to three and three to six p.m. At any one of those times, he could be here. I, Mark's breaking it down to, you don't even know what time of the day he's coming. Even if you knew the day, you wouldn't know what the hour was. So live like it could be any minute. That's what he is saying. Now, with that, you're going to see this last verse. The last verse in our text, he's going to say, uh, let's see, what are we? No, it's here. Or else he might find you asleep. Now, in this particular text, not all texts about the future. Some, you can sleep just fine. Like in the parable of the ten virgins, sleeping was okay. In this parable, Jesus is trying to illustrate what he means by being faithful by using... Uh, just the opposite. Falling asleep in this case would be the worst thing you could do. In this picture of the end, don't fall asleep. That means always have your eye on the door. It doesn't mean you're not supposed to sleep at night. It doesn't mean that. It's a figure. It's a figure for being alert all the time. 
You lay your head down at night. You wake up in the morning. It's your first thoughts. You live as if he could come any second. Because asleep would be the worst thing you want to be in this case. What do we say of someone who's asleep? Oh, he's out of it. Oh, he's gone. Oh, hear about this one. You ever say, oh, he's useless. You ever say that? Oh, he's useless. Uh, that's what we say about someone who's asleep. And you know what's going to happen? Just a few verses out. You know what we're going to see in chapter 14 and 15? Is we're going to see these time frames referred to again in the trial and the crucifixion of Jesus. And we're going to see the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. What are they going to do? They're going to sleep. And what does it represent? It just represents, it's a small window into people's lives who, aren't, who are spiritually insensitive. They're spiritually out of it. That's all it represents. A sort of careless discipleship. I have fallen asleep on the job. So here's what, and in the context, asleep means you didn't make it to the end. At some point. So this isn't a, I nodded off for a little while and came back. This is a big figure that says you went to bed, meaning your faith wasn't real and it wasn't lasting and it wasn't his second coming you were living for. And so we would go back to our picture and we would say something along these lines. If this didn't impact you or if, if you weren't waiting for this, something went wrong here. See, if you weren't waiting for the last thing to happen, if you, if you fell asleep here, if somehow the last piece of it got away from you, probably the rest of it did too. And that's what falling asleep in this text would, would insinuate. You didn't make it to the end. Remember what he told his disciples? Make sure you endure to the end. I need the guy who mans the door until I come back. Not a guy who takes the break, a break from the door. I'm talking about a big break. I'm talking about... The break that says, I'm not really worried about the second coming anymore. That guy. So, uh, I only have a couple seconds. Let me give you, uh, let me show you one more text that will help bring that to life a little bit. This is First Thessalonians. If you want to read about the second coming a little bit and, and understand these things a little bit more. First and second Thessalonians, small books, but they talk about this. So here's what Paul says in first Thessalonians five. Now on the topic of times and seasons, brothers, you have no need of anything be written to you. Remember, they thought they were in the second. They thought the second coming had happened. For, you know, quite well that the day that's the same day Jesus is talking about in the Olivet discourse. No one knows when that day happens. But notice what he's going to say. That day of the Lord will come in the same way as a thief in the night. That's essentially what our text just said, the parable. When they are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction comes on them like labor pains. There's our labor pains, which is in the Olivet Discourse. And they will surely not escape. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in the darkness for the day to overtake you like a thief. It's not going to be like a thief when he comes back for you. For you are all sons of the light. It means you read this text and it says you're going to be here when this day happens. For you are all sons of the light and sons of the day. Look at these. Look at these images. 
You are sons of the light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. We must not sleep as the rest. Here's that image again. What does he mean by sleep? Stay alert. Here it is. Do you see how this is the Olivet Discourse in First Thessalonians? He's using all the same words. Okay, this is where Paul got his information. You're supposed to stay alert. And what he means by stay alert is stay sober. Stay self-controlled. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk, get drunk at night. So sober becomes a picture of self-control. And drunkenness becomes a picture of a lack of self-control. In other words, I can't have a guy manning the door who doesn't know where the door is. Everybody with me? All right. Since we are of the day, this is one of the great statements here. We are of the day. We must stay sober by putting on the breastplate of faith and love and the helmet of our hope for salvation. We are of the day. Let me tell you what this is essentially saying. Okay? When that day comes, and he's describing two different pictures here. I'm going to draw them for you. One is, imagine the sun coming up. And then, and then the moon. And in this text, he's saying, you're either of the day or you're of the night. You're either of the day or you're of the night. And he says, if you're of the day, when the day happens, you're going to fit right in. It won't feel like, in other words, when he comes to the door, you're going to go, yeah, come on in. We've been, we've been waiting for you. It won't be... It won't be that kind of thing. Why? Because you're of the day. You're of the day. In other words, you already thrive in his presence. His actual physical presence won't alarm you to any great degree because you've been living as if he were present all along. In the light of his word, in the light of his glory, in the light of his purpose, in that light you have been living so When he comes back and shines, you've already been living in that light morally and spiritually and personally and relationally. And that's why I want to tell you this. The idea is not for you to be afraid that he comes back and you're going to get caught doing something you shouldn't. The odds are the majority of us are going to get caught doing something we shouldn't. Don't you think that's true? How many things do you do wrong in a day? That if we just were rolling dice, you're going to get caught doing something you shouldn't do or thinking something you shouldn't do. If that were the... If if he could come at any time and the any time is what scared you, then you wouldn't be looking at the return the way you're supposed to. You're supposed to be looking for a person and happy that he gets here. And that's the guy you've been looking for. Not going, oh no, I don't want to get caught doing something. Because let me tell you, when he gets here, he's going to assess you. He's not going to say, oh, because I caught you doing something you shouldn't in that moment, you're out. Otherwise, we'd probably all be out. What he's going to do is he's going to assess you that day the same way he's going to assess your whole life and character as a day person and not a night person. You're either a day person or a night person. It's not built on one episode of your life. So what I'm trying to say is it's not the fact you say, well, if you take away the idea that he can come back tomorrow, doesn't that mean, doesn't that let me off the hook a little bit today? 
because he won't come back and catch me doing something. If that's your mentality, you've completely missed what the second coming's about, and you're not a doorkeeper at all. It's not eminence, in other words, any time return, that's supposed to scare us. Paul just said in 1 Thessalonians 5, it's not going to scare you at all. It's not eminence of his return. It's the person who's returning. It's who it is that's coming back, that we're associated with, that we love, that we That's why we're watching in alert. We're not watching in alert because we're going to get in trouble when he comes back. Listen, if you're of the night, you're in trouble. If you're of the day, you're not. Isn't that much better news to live with? What's scary is not that he could come back any second. What's wonderful is that he's coming back and you'll be, you'll be, you'll be who you've been. Well, that's the Olivet Discourse. I don't know what else to tell you. That's Mark 13, and I'll tell you what, I've, I've taken at least 20 years off my life getting us through that chapter. <laughs> and the fact that you have endured it. And I'm looking forward to chapter 14. We're due after Father's Day. We'll start chapter 14, and I'm looking forward to getting in it and out of this chapter. But, hey, there were some profound things in this chapter to take home. There were some profound things in this chapter. So thanks for enduring it. It does uh, not, not, not many folks want to do that. So I'm, I'm grateful to you for letting you walk. I learned a lot myself. I hope you did too. All right, well, let's stand to our feet. We'll be dismissed. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for it. And Lord, we, we really want to be mindful doorkeepers, just what you say in this text. At the end of the day, we don't know when you're coming back, and we're satisfied with that. We understand what you've given us to do in the meantime. And I pray that we're all serving you with our eye on the door. We're all serving you with our eye on the door and living for you so that when you return, your presence is a wonderful welcome Because you've been in our life all this time. You've been assessing our life all this time. You know what we're doing even before you get here. You don't need to walk in the door to see. You already know. And so we live as if you already know. And that has so changed our lives. Knowing the wonder of your return. And we're thankful for that. In Jesus' name. Amen.